Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so happy to welcome back returning guests, Conway and Siegelman, my heroes, the authors of Holy Terror and Snapping. So welcome once again. Hey, Glenn. Hi, Glenn. It's great to be back with you. It really is. It's been actually way too long. We've been talking about doing a podcast episode for months and months now. We've been working on another project, which we'll talk about later, I think, in the podcast. It's really exciting stuff that you are working on. We've been helping you with that a little bit. But we, we want to talk about the Christian right. We want to talk about what's going on in current events in terms of what's happened in Trump world and everything since he left office. So there's so much to talk about. What I love about you two is that you were there. You were on the ground doing the investigative reporting literally within, what, a couple of years or even during the origins of the Christian right with Holy Terror. Yes, that's absolutely right. As I think we were the really the first journalists and uh, researchers to uh, to do that to go straight into the field and mm-hmm. we were we were absolutely on the ground when this happened and we'll take you through the whole journey the whole, <laughs> on, uh, the whole journey we're live in our new york offices now and perhaps you can hear the sirens going by in the background i don't think mm-hmm. noise expression will cancel all that out but no it's really true uh, the religious right was formed probably 78 they dated unofficially 1980 election was when it really went into high gear and went into operation. And we uh, started our first research tour. We were tracking this for several years before. And uh, when they went into the um, political arena uh, was when we decided that we had to follow it in there. Flo, you want to give a background on the research? we did first? Since we're going to do time travel here, and what's important about this time travel that we're going to take you through is to understand and to be able to see and hear the patterns that we gathered and what we saw, what we recorded, what we document. Along the way, uh, Jim and I both will read some portions of some of the the really important interviews we did, but to see the, the way in which people use the word now about how everything from Trump and before how everything on the far right has been metastasizing mm. through the country, through the political arenas, through social arenas. So that that is what we see now when we go back to Holy Terror. But the most important thing for people who are listening to this now is to understand that when we were doing this, when we were doing snapping, and then when we were doing Holy Terror, there was no such thing as the internet. There was no such thing as a smartphone. There was no such thing as social media. So that it's in that context, when you understand how this beginning, how it started. Now, the way in which we first heard about something going on out there among the the, uh, denominations, the churches, was actually when we were on 
one tour after another and TV appearances one after another all across the country for snapping after Jonestown when that tragedy hit in Guyana. And what would happen is that we would be on the stage, we would be speaking to uh, university audiences, to all kinds of audiences. And the questions we started to get had nothing to do with cults. And it was mainly sometimes lone people standing in the, in the wings off of the stage when we would go off or at the door when we were leaving the facility, wherever we were speaking. These people coming to us and saying, thank you so much. Nothing has made sense for so long until I heard you tonight. And then they started telling us about the problems they were seeing with a child, with a husband. To us, it seemed a lot like what we heard in the beginning of snapping from people out in the country whose family members or relatives or somebody was getting caught up. And this time, they were being caught up in born-again groups, kind of fundamentalist Christian groups. And we were hearing from people of all denominations. With our work with snapping, it was dealing with the cults that came out six months before the Jonestown tragedy. And we were in motion for two years after that, testifying in the U.S. Senate, doing media speaking dates. But that was when we started what we called our first study of the cult phenomenon, the cult phenomenon and its mm -hmm. effects. Uh, that led to what we've talked about on your earlier podcast as our information disease findings. And we were looking at the cult rituals, the recruitment, the conversion, the indoctrination. And then when people would come out of cults, which were in those days, the Moonies, the Hare Krishnas, Scientology, people in those groups were victims of some pretty intense methods of mind control. And that's what that study was trying to discover. We had about 400 uh, responses to that first survey, people from 59 different groups, cults. And then what we found was that most of them, the two thirds of the people that we were studying that, that hadn't been in the Moonies or another group were coming from what they call Bible cults at that time, an extreme fundamentalist Christian sects. The Way International was the major one right at the turning point between a cult and a Bible group. And uh, we had a lot of people talking about the rituals they practiced there. And when we did our analysis, looking at how serious the after effects were, the effects of people who couldn't think clearly, had trouble making reason independent choices, uh, had rhythms and, and mantras floating around in their heads, we found that of the major groups we studied, the people who had been in the Bible cults had the second most extreme after effects in, in terms of the energy and the duration, how long it lasted. Only Church of Scientology, for reasons we can go into later, was more intense in terms of the effects. And we knew this was part of this phenomenon. And when they started getting political, going into the political arena in that 1980 election, we said, now we've really got to get in here because this is a potential for enormous amounts of manipulation and damage to individuals and the culture. So that's what led you into researching the origins of the Christian right then? It was it was your earlier work in cult psychology, communication tactics, mind control. It wasn't necessarily you set out and said, hey, there's this new thing called the Christian right. We should research it and write about it. It was the fact that, hey, wait a minute, there's all this overlap yeah. and correlations between the communication techniques and everything else. What we saw very much was uh, when we saw the amount of damage that was being done in these uh, fundamentalist Bible cults, 
And the people who then, what I said earlier, where they were waiting for us to talk to us, then it's like, then you put that together with what we saw from our study and what we were starting to hear from people themselves on the ground out of our audiences then. And then when we started to uh, research it, well, that's part of the journey we're going to go we, into. We <laughs> saw that uh, you know, prior to the 1980 elections, evangelical Christians in America who constituted uh, the largest block of unregistered voters of any group that could be categorized as a demographic, 60 million by some estimates, they had largely stayed out of politics historically, especially since the Scopes trial in the late 1920s, mm -hmm. which was a devastating blow to evangelical Christians. But in the late 70s, especially when Jimmy Carter ran for president in 1976, he was an evangelical Christian, a Democrat, and out of the woodwork came evangelical Christians who suddenly were voting for Carter because he was a good Christian. And, mm -hmm. and yet he was totally secular in terms of his politics and how he governed the country. But there were groups forming on the right, groups that called themselves the New Right. Some of the figures were political strategists, mm -hmm. Richard Vigore, uh, Paul Weyrich, who people may have heard mm -hmm. of, a young man named Terry Dolan. Uh, and they saw that this enormous group of evangelical Christians could be mobilized to vote for Republicans, and not on basis of economic or foreign policy, but on the single issue of abortion. And that was really the founding turn for the whole Christian right in the political arena. Uh, in 1978, they tested their theory in two Senate elections, and it proved to be valid. And in 1980, they went to this full force. They mobilized uh, get-out-the-vote efforts and mobilized forming the moral majority of which Harry Falwell in Lynchburg, Virginia, was mm -hmm. one of the founding figures. Reverend Tim LaHaye in San Diego was the second. And they met regularly with the New Right strategists and rounded up tens of thousands of evangelical pastors across the country who they then used to get them saved, get them registered, and get them out to vote. That was Falwell's slogan. That's Falwell's statement. 1980 election was a landslide for Reagan. Yeah. And even more, they targeted congressmen and uh, senators, five major liberal Democratic senators uh, with this plan and the, the group Terry Dolan founded called NICPAC, the National Conservative Political Action Committee, which lives today as uh, CPAC, which you may have uh, heard there. Yeah. Every year they have a conference. Oh, yeah. More and more extreme. A bunch of people speak. Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and of course, Donald Trump himself. Oh, I mean, NICPAC was founded by Dolan, Weyrick, Vigure, and a young political strategist named Roger Stone, Stone, one and the same. As How the ironic. Brings us right up to the sacking of the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, you keep hearing the same names that pop up over and over, don't you? Yeah. And that's the thing, isn't it? We know that they turned against Carter, as, as ironic as it was. Yes, as you say, he was a genuine evangelical Christian. Yes, he was. Yes. He came out and said, I, am a, I believe in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and all the rest of it. And the media said, what is he talking about? What's an evangelical? But yet by 1980, they've turned against him. And here's this evangelical-friendly candidate, Ronald Reagan, who says, I know you can't endorse me, but I endorse you in 1980. And we know the whole story from there. But you were there on the ground. That's what's so fascinating about it during well, we, all this time period. As a matter of fact, we went in when we were started our tour in terms of researching in the beginning. And we went to see uh, Ruth Carter Stapleton, who was Jimmy Carter's sister. She was a, a, a psychologist, a Christian psychologist and a therapist. And the interview in Holy Terror with her is really, really eye-opening 
because at the time, what she was speaking to, and we were in the midst of, she was speaking to the way in which they were calling her other, other evangelicals, the ones out of Falwell's church, the ones out of Pat Robertson's church or whatever. And they were calling her queen of the witches and that everything she was doing was part of Satan. And she, uh, she spoke to all of this and she spoke to the people who needed her help because they were having, and that's exactly the people who were coming to us too. Mm -hmm. And to see the difference between who she was as an evangelical, who her brother was, and to see what was happening right there in the midst of, of all of this, that's what we were looking at. It was amazing to see how that changed. We hit the, we hit the road three weeks after Ronald Reagan's inauguration. Mm. We traveled the country for five months. We headed out of New York and we were heading down to, the, to Virginia and to Washington, D.C. and Virginia, and we said, well, we better not take a car from New York with New York plates. We'll wait till we get down to Virginia <laughs> and we'll rent a car. Yeah, so we get down move. to Virginia, we rent a car and the car, it had Connecticut plates. That was even worse. <laughs> even worse. Yankees. So you, had, you had two Connecticut Yankees heading down there, but we started in D.C. Flo will tell you about those first interviews in Washington. And then we went down to Virginia where we uh, went to Lynchburg, Jerry Falwell's headquarters and Virginia Beach, Pat Robertson's and worked our way south and west all the way out west to uh, San Bernardino, California, to San Diego, where Tim LaHaye was, and San Bernardino, where Campus Crusade for Christ was headquartered at the time. Mm -hmm. They were the biggest uh, parachurch ministry. We'll talk about them later, but they were not overtly political. And yet what we saw and what we heard showed that their agenda was even more political on a global scale than some of the domestic political groups. But Flo, why don't you tell a little bit about what we heard when we first hit Washington in oh, 1981? Okay, I think one of the things that was really sobering, and I have to tell you that at times as Jim and I went forward on the ground there in the midst of it all, sometimes it was just um, almost, it almost overwhelmed us what we were hearing. It overwhelmed us in terms of the implications of what we saw coming. And the two people who really put it into perspective were a congressman from Oklahoma. His name was Representative Mike Sina from uh, Oklahoma. And he actually was in the Senate for the House. I mean, the House for 16 terms. Mm. And when we met with him, he was the one, oh, well, no, well, first it was Frank Church very famous Senator Frank Church from Watergate times uh, in terms of his, his role in the uh, Watergate committee. After Watergate was when there was a lot of soul searching in the U.S. Congress and Frank Church, who was head of a Democrat from Idaho, uh, head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, led a committee that became known as the Church Committee that was the first to inquire into the CIA's covert operations and illegal actions for regime change all around the world. And when we went to see Frank Church, he had just been defeated in that big five that Nick Pack wiped out. They were some of the most powerful Democrats yeah. in the U.S. Senate. They're, these are the people who were targeted by Nick Pack in the 1980 election. Senator Church, George McGovern of South Dakota, Birch Bayh of Indiana, John Culver of Iowa and Alan Cranston of California 
all but Cranston lost. And when we went in to interview Frank Church, we asked him, first of all, if he had ever faced these kinds of strategies before or anything like them. And he said, never before. He said, in the 1980 campaign, Pax had branded Frank Church of social progress and the dominant Senate figure during the foreign policy debacle of Vietnam, a baby killer, an apostle of appeasement, a liar, and a dangerous man. And he fought back. He lashed out at them. And he said, I don't know what to make of their motivation. And he confessed, still stunned by this new breed of political adversary. He said about uh, Terry Dolan, who was the leader of NITPAC, as a very brazen man with no compunctions about twisting the truth, reshaping it and presenting it in ways that are intended to discredit an incumbent in the eyes of his constituents. What NICPAC did was unleash volley after volley of computerized, computer-written direct mail, targeting mailing lists of evangelical pastors around the country, uh, known conservative donors, Richard Vigore, the computer man, the money man, uh, who headed the direct mail enterprise uh, outside of Washington, had 5 million names in his computerized files at that time. And then they cranked in tens of thousands of evangelicals who the church leaders and especially the electronic church televangelists had on their own mailing list. And they just unleashed barrage after barrage of direct mail assailing these uh, targeted senators and congressmen. And they put out complete lies. Today, I guess, after Trump, everything is considered just par for the course, but this was unprecedented in American politics. Outright lies and uh, and targeting these people, and then on top of that, to start assailing them for being agents of Satan and for their policies that were counter to the Bible. It's interesting that you mentioned that because you said earlier it was just before the age of the internet, the smartphones, and all the rest of it. But yet we've seen what's really important now is the data. You know, the Russians used data from Facebook and other social media sites to influence the 2016 election. And that's what they really want, isn't it? And that's what guys like Richard Vigre, he wanted those mailing lists, the base of guys like Jerry Falwell and others, didn't he? That he was able to use that and expand this empire to have direct male contact with all these millions, I guess, of conservative evangelicals to turn them against certain candidates. Tens of millions. Well, they yeah. had that what they had, they had in the, let's say in the Jerry Falwell section, you had what was going out in the churches, what people were being told in their churches, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. In this part of the first of how the new right was born, this was where on the Sunday, let's say, in the parking lot of all the churches, all these brochures, all these things would be put on the windshields. They would be mm-hmm. passed out. And they would be saying, um, you know, uh, Frank Church is a, is a demon. He's an atheist. He's this, he's this, he's this. But without an internet, without a social media, this, was the, check it? this was the first ways uh, they did it, the first ways. And then in the churches, those were the two things that went together. And NITPAP worked, was like the master strategist for many, many different kinds of Christian organizations that were smaller, more local, and spread around. But So NITPAP was the, the uh, kind of a coordinating, mm-hmm. coordinating part of that. And when we asked Church, he has something really interesting to say here. 
right here when he said, you can say accurately of Terry Dolan and his associates at SNCPAC that truth is the first casualty in their campaigns, that they are simply engaged in manipulating public opinion. They have come to believe that if you use these methods, if you have the money, if you repeat the themes, you can cut into the basic support of any incumbent and have a powerful influence on electing your own candidates. And you can see even today where this strategy, this way of working is still going on. Mm -hmm. One of the things about this whole shift that we were watching as communication researchers was what we came to call the black marketplace of ideas. Okay. Nobody had any mm-hmm. idea what was going on. People could watch the electronic church, but that was just the beginning, what the televangelists were preaching on Sundays from their pulpit. They used that to get people into their 800 numbers, to get them signed up and put them on the mailing list. And from that point on, between whatever that was being said on the phone banks, whatever was going out through the mailing list, the Democrats and other and their opponents, the targeted people, had no idea what was going out. Things wouldn't catch up for weeks, and there was no way they could counter them and reach the same audience because there was a closed loop of control mm-hmm. from the preachers and the strategists out to the people. And that's what Frank Church noted was one of the most devastating parts of this new movement. Mm-hmm. But that, and you can see there where when Jim's talking about the closed loop. Uh, while we were doing this, I had a sister in uh, around uh, right outside of Denver, and she was very active in democratic politics. And what she told me was that all of her neighbors on both sides, they were all Republicans or they were all in a church. And she said they all knew all this stuff and she never saw anything about it. And she said, I read everything. And that's what it was like. They knew to target. And that's where Vigure had his uh, lists and what have you. Mm-hmm. Mailing lists. Yeah. And, and so it was very specific. And the next phase of the strategy, which is what Congressman Siner saw, mm-hmm. was that there was a point at which they went through all of this and he outlined the strategy they used on him in the beginning. And he said, there was so much intense emotion and hatred that anytime he would walk into a town hall meeting, it was so intense and it was so emotional. And they had all their little, you know, five word explanations about Mm -hmm. abortion or about whatever their cause was. And it's like, to really explain it, said they would have it. It's just bullet points. Yeah. Yeah. And they wouldn't listen to, they wouldn't listen. Mm -hmm. They couldn't receive what he was saying. What Mike Siner told us is that all of a sudden, then all the ways that they were doing things, church parking lots, when they would put the uh, a picture of the boarded fetus on the on the window dashboards of everybody, mm-hmm. cars and all of that, then it changed. They got a little more sophisticated. That's when they started using the report cards. What Siner told us was mm-hmm. really some of the first insights we had into this. He described it in his district in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. He said in districts like mine, they would start with their base group, which is the religious community of small town churches. And they would bring someone in from the national office of moral majority who would meet in the small local church. And then they would start to show a film full of uh, all these all these scary right wing movies with talk about Russians and welfare cheaters and communists. And the moral majority man would get up at that point and he would say how this new Democratic candidate of the Democrats were trying to destroy the family unit, the moral and ethical fiber of the district. 
And this was the insight that Siner had from his conservative district. He said, you see, for many years, the right has always had unbelievable amounts of money, but they never had the soldiers. This marriage between the religious community and right-wing money gave them the two tools it took to win, all the money you could ever want and all the soldiers you would need to deliver. He said, we can fight the money, but when they pull in 400 workers from the youth groups and the churches who have been all fired up against us, he said, that's an impossible thing to match. Mm -hmm. That was really the story in 1980 that has become a template ever since. They don't talk about it as much now, Clinton. This is a pattern we've been watching for 40 years through this 40 year Mm -hmm. holy war. In those days, when we went out there and started talking to people and researching, the right was wide open about their victories. They were chest pounding from their landslide in 1980 and they weren't hiding anything. But when they started to meet opposition as the 80s progressed and by the end of the 80s, they went underground. And we'll get into that a little later. Catherine Stewart in her book, The Power Worshippers, I mean, she describes exactly the movement that's come to fruition decades later, what you just described. That yes. was the playbook that they put together back then in the, with the Moral Majority and other organizations. Whereas now she went to a, it was like an all day Saturday event at a church with a pastor or friend of hers. And it was put on by the Family Research Council, which, of course, was yes. started by James Dobson from Focus on the Family as a kind of a political arm of his ministry. It was all about training pastors of churches in the area to mobilize their congregations to get involved in the political process, handing out voters' guides and all those things. So that, and that was just a couple of years ago. So that's the playbook, isn't it, that was started decades ago, what yes. you just described. Okay, let me read. This is from uh, Mike Siner. He said, look, he continued, these people are fanatics. They have one policy, win at all costs. They'll push any issue that will get them a vote, any issue that will raise them a buck. They'll say anything. They'll do anything. They'll use any tactic that's available to them. They have no principles, no morals, no ethics. They will say anything regardless of whether there's an iota of truth to it. They'll play to any group. And that is where what we are watching today. Exactly. I was going to say. It's, it's like a template, right? He could have said that yesterday and it would have been exactly the case. What's going on now? And when it has been going on. Yeah, and, and when Mike Siner at the end, when he told us it went underground and in Holy Terror, the second part of Holy Terror is called covert operations. Because it was as we went and as we gathered up and learned this from people. And Mike Siner was the one who told us that it had become a stealth movement. And then in 1988, you hear from Ralph Reed from the uh, Christian Christian Coalition. They said, we paint our faces and travel at night. You don't know it's over till you're in a body bag. But this was the 80s. Wow. Before there was Christian. There was Internet. (laughs) And I want you to just hear one quote that Mike Siner ended this interview with that could have been said today, but this was the very beginning of this. It's, it was his frustration and it's been ours in many ways. Yeah. This is what Mike said about this. Yes. It's the future of the whole American democratic structure as we know it. We've always had extremist groups in this country on the right and on the left, but thankfully they have always played themselves out. Never before have we had such massive amounts of money combined with precision targeting. If enough people surrender, if enough people give up, if enough people say the challenge is not great enough, just let them have it. If enough people turn their heads, 
you're going to see a change in the focus of this country that may take generations to recover from. We are heading toward a point where reason, compassion, and understanding will no longer be the order of the day. It will be emotion and deception, fear and lies. It's up to the American people to decide whether they will accept that type of politics. That was 1981, and it could have been said last week. Exactly. This is a real template in relation. It is, yeah. It's the playbook. When we get back from the break, we're going to take a look at what was the effect or what is the effect of all this sort of rhetoric, the communications, which is what they studied, that was their speciality. What was the effect on the average evangelical Christian? We're going to take a look at the story of a woman named Diane, and they call her the first ex-evangelical. They interviewed her, and her story is in Holy Terror, and we're going to talk about that, the mental health of Diane and what all this stuff did to her and then how she got out, what happened on the back end of the story. And what's really interesting about all this, I've just started going through Stephen Hassan's book, The Cult of Trump. And of course, he talks about in that book, the use of language, the use of communication and what it does to people psychologically. Donald Trump was a master of communication. Whether you love him or hate him, you have to admit that he used language very, very effectively. And as Hassan argues, he was constructing, he did construct a cult, a political cult of personality. And in many ways, that's still going on. And what Conway and Siegelman uncovered, and this is what, again, is so fascinating about their research, is that they, as cult experts, once they had written their book, Snapping, and then, of course, the Jonestown tragedy happened in Guyana with the Jim Jones uh, cult where they had almost a thousand people murdered or committed mass suicide. They were hugely popular because everybody wanted to understand what the cult phenomenon was all about in the late 1970s and early 80s. And then there's this segue into the Christian right. There is definitely a connection between cult psychology and what the Christian right has done and is still doing even today. And of course, we saw that with the cult of Trump. QAnon and so many other things that deeply, deeply affect people and can destroy relationships. We've seen that for sure with the cult of QAnon and the cult of Trump dividing friends and family members. So that's just one of the effects. But before we continue on with the chat with Conway and Sigmund, I wanted to talk about what is coming up here on MindShift Podcast. I've got some really cool stuff in the works. We've got an episode coming out. The next actual episode is going to be with Dr. Terry Daniel where she has the show Ask Dr. Death, and we talked about religion, mental health, death and dying, grief, and more. So that was just a really fantastic conversation. And then we've also got an episode coming up with Andrew Jasko. We had a conversation about the use of psychedelics to treat PTSD and religious trauma syndrome. That is another absolutely mind-blowing conversation. And then we've got some bonus episodes that'll be dropping. I just had a fantastic conversation just the other night with Frederick Clarkson or Fred Clarkson of the Political Research Associates. Absolutely fantastic. This guy has been writing about the Christian right, Dominion theology, Christian reconstructionism, literally for decades. In fact, 
Fred was one of the very first authors, journalists, to investigate this movement back in the early 1990s, and he's blown the whistle on things like Project Blitz. If you don't know what Project Blitz is, you're going to want to listen to this conversation that I had with Fred Clarkson. And in fact, speaking of Fred Clarkson, we have agreed he's going to come in in April on the 25th. We're going to have him as our guest for the April Mindshift Zoom call. So I'm really excited to uh, have Fred come in and he'll meet everybody in our group. How can you get on these calls? These calls are absolutely amazing. In fact, uh, this Sunday, as I'm doing this recording, on the 28th of March, we have as our guest Andrew Jasko. And again, we're going to be touching on this issue of psychedelics and the healing of religious trauma syndrome, among other things. I don't want to give too much away because with, that episode hasn't dropped yet with Andrew. But we had a great call the week before with Thomas Hanna, who is also a therapist who deals with religious trauma syndrome. And that call, if you want to watch that call, it's really good. We get into a lot of stuff around religious trauma syndrome. We get into dealing with anger and feeling overwhelmed. We talk about being triggered. So that's a fantastic conversation. And in fact, speaking of religious trauma syndrome... There's one other thing I have to share that is super cool. My good friend Janice Selby, who's been on this show a couple of times before, she is putting on the Court 2021, the Conference on Religious Trauma. Leading experts are going to discuss the causes, effects, and recovery related to religious trauma. It's an online conference, May 11th through the 16th, 2021. And if you are interested in dropping into that conference, Court 2021, the simplest way to find out more information, go on Twitter and look up at Come to Court. That's C O R T. So at Come to Court on Twitter. There, there's links to the actual conference itself and how you can book tickets. You're not going to want to miss that. I am actually going to be a part of that along with David Hayward, the Naked Pastor, and Tim Sledge. Uh, goodbye Jesus. We're going to do a panel uh, of ex-pastors talking about our experiences dealing with religious trauma syndrome and sort of helping people through that. So I am super excited to be a part of that conference. Some amazing speakers, for example, Dr. Marlene Winnell is one of the headliners. She basically wrote the book on religious trauma syndrome. So just seeing Dr. Marlene Winnell is worth the price of admission right there. So check out the conference on religious trauma 2021. I'll just mention too, really briefly, that if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter as well. Look me up at MindShift2018. And as I say, if you want to watch the video with Thomas Hanna or any of the other ones that we've done recently, like with Frank Schaefer and some of the other ones, absolutely fantastic Zoom calls, I have posted them up on my MindShift Podcast Facebook page. Those are publicly available now. You can watch those calls. And you can get a hold of me through that page as well. You can also support the show on Patreon, and the links to that are in the show notes. So let's get on back into the conversation with Conway and Siegelman. As I said, we're going to start taking a look into this issue of what is the effect on the individual person. We want to look at the story of Diane, the first ex-evangelical. But now we're talking about these big sort of global, you know, perspectives. What about the people on the ground? What? Yes. How does this affect the average sort of Christian? Because I love that chapter in your book where you talk about this woman that you met who kind of deconstructed, deconverted, lost her faith. And then she's got this unbelievable story. When I read that, I thought, my God, that's, that's the story of myself in so many ways. So many other people that I've talked to who have walked away from it all. 
Well, as we say in Holy Terror, there are many stories that we have and many, not just their stories, but they're one-to-one interviews. That's what I mean. You can't just go and click on Wikipedia. You can't just go and click on evangelical. You couldn't do that in 1981. And these yeah, there people, was no internet. <laughs> no. And actually, Diane is her name. Right. And what we knew when we had this is that in this one interview, we heard every that people had been telling us the help they had been pleading mm-hmm. for and not knowing what to do. And she found us, she heard us on a, a television show and she called to the television show and, and got our uh, particulars. And so they gave us a note at the television station and we called her when we were ready to take off on our next big tour to interview, it was our research. And we went to Philadelphia and sat down with her for the next five hours, she told us about her eight years as a member of different evangelical, charismatic, and fundamentalist churches. In her story were all the letters we had received, all the pained faces we had seen, all the rumblings we had heard. I never set out to become a Christian, she began. I was a 60s person. And then she went through all of this, how it started out very casually. Diane was an artist. And so Mm -hmm. in her painting classes, this one girl, Sarah Ann, set up her easel next to her. And Diane said something about feeling anxious or having anxiety. Then one day, Sarah Ann turns to her. She said, Sarah Ann turned to me and said, I know why you're going crazy. And I know what will help you. I asked her what, and she said, well, if you'd like to kneel down right now and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to come and indwell you and Jesus can be your Lord and Savior. Diane says, I dropped my brushes and started to laugh. This was the, <laughs> this was the opening shot. <laughs> that was the opening gambit, huh? Wow. Sarah Ann kept up with her and so many people we had interviewed. Uh, she invited her to a small meeting in their home uh, mm-hmm. just to get her introduced to the group and so deeply into this movement that she was consumed completely. It broke up her marriage. She said, uh, they told her that, you know, all of her, she was an early feminist. She was an, she was a mother. She was an artist. And they told her that nothing mattered except Jesus, that no art mattered except for Christ, that none of the things you're reading matter except the Bible. And she got so deeply into this that it, uh, it really consumed her life for so long. And one day she was, uh, she said, where it all really came to a, a head for her. This is what she said. It was so easy for me to become a disciple of Jesus. It was the other person they wanted me to become that didn't seem like Jesus. They wanted me to be a nothing, an empty shell. They wanted me to give up everything that meant anything to me and replace it with Jesus. They said, Jesus is sufficient for all your needs. You don't need your friends. You don't need your children. You don't need your husband. You don't need music. Looking back on it, I can see that everybody was miserable. And then she became, she got so that she became ill and she went to a hospital, but she couldn't even, she says, I got really sick. She said, I became emotionally ill. Then I turned, she said, I I wouldn't listen to anybody. I couldn't hear anything. I, I thought that they were all part of Satan. I couldn't turn to anybody. She said, then I turned to myself and found out that I was gone too. I was totally helpless. I felt like I was falling into a bottomless pit. 
I became terrified. As she continued, it became apparent that we were dealing with something larger than the identifiable techniques of mind control. To us, her experience spoke of an added dimension, an added dimension, a frightening new form of emotional control. She was the first born again Christian we spoke with who could articulate the conflict. Mm-hmm. She turned to things that made her happy and she started thinking about her music and her whatever. She said, but the, the thing that just was the straw that broke the camel's back is when, she, when they told her she couldn't care about people who were not Christians. She mm. couldn't care because they were all from Satan's. She said, when they, start, when they said that, you could, that I should not care about anybody, she said that was it. Anyway, as it turned out, this eight-year saga was coming to an end just as the nation's encounter was beginning. In the spring of 1980, things came together for her. When I heard about the Washington for Jesus March, something clicked inside my head. I remembered all the things they had been teaching us over the years, and I thought, they're marching on Washington. They're really going to do it. They're going to change democracy. Of course, they didn't call it political. They said it was all spiritual. But I remembered the seminars we were instructed to attend. They gave us these booklets about spiritual dangers. They never actually came out and said that democracy was wrong, but they said that a pluralistic society was not acceptable to God. They mm-hmm. said that religion was only an illusion and that democracy could only work if Christians had the leadership positions. And then we asked her when we were leaving this interview at the end of five hours, she went to Washington with her tape recorder and everything. And she said, I was right. I, it's exactly as I thought. The followers had no idea that the leaders were directing them down a whole new path, a political one. And so we asked her if we could hear the tapes. Mm. And so we did. Diane played some of her tapes from the first Washington March. We heard the din of the crowd, the singing, the clapping, the booming speeches. To the naked ear, it sounded like one of the great civil rights marches or anti-war rallies of the 60s. Upon closer examination, we could hear a new and throbbing undertone. This nation was founded on God. The Lord has called us here today with his word and prophecy that we might call this nation back to repentance. We've come to Washington in love, but we've come with the message of Almighty God. This nation is going down. The whole nation is going to be destroyed. Mm, Christian nationalism right there, isn't it? The beginning, that was the first Washington March. They had 400,000 people on the Mm -hmm. Mall of Washington in April 1980. And what Diane told us was she would talk to all these people and they didn't think this was political. They said to her, if this were political, I wouldn't even be be here. here. And that's what we began to see the influence. And what Frank Church said was they rule by indirection. They never come out and say what their agenda is, at least in those days. But yes, that was the beginning of Christian nationalism and Mm -hmm. figures from the uh, technologists and the strategists around Washington to the uh, televangelists who were the opening in, into this whole network that people were being recruited into by the millions. Yeah, I was going to say too that one of the things about the genius, well, many genius aspects of it, the, the whole family, you know, it's attacks on the family, anti-gay, anti-ERA, abortion, it's all attacks on the family, but this issue of appealing to people's patriotism as well, 
through yeah. this Christian nationalist message. If you believe in America, if you believe that you want to save America, who doesn't want to save America? And this <laughs> narrative that it was founded as a Christian nation, and you can hear it in what you read, you know, they're saying that America is sliding down. It's, it's going down this dark and horrible path, but we can turn it around. We can bring America back to God. That was the language, the rhetoric. And these people are saying, but this isn't political. This is, this is theological here. This is like what the Bible says, what God wants us to do. That's how deeply manipulated they were, weren't they? They were. The thing that Diane was so quick to point out, she felt this so deeply. Even talking about this with her, something that she had never spoken about before. And she was very emotional. It was when she was interviewing the people who went to Washington. And she could see, she said, they didn't know they were so innocent. They loved Jesus. They were, yeah, you know. They were just they, caught up in it. And they just didn't know what was ahead. What I have to do is just read what we say about how we sum up what we're looking at here. Mm -hmm. We say that in the 80s, America has given birth to a new form of care, a campaign of fear and intimidation aimed at the hearts of millions. It is in two great arenas, religion and politics, that this new terror has raised its head. In the past few years, a small group of preachers and political strategists has begun to use religion and all that Americans hold sacred to seize power across a broad spectrum of our lives. They are exploiting this cherished, protected institution, our most intimate values and individual beliefs, along with our civil religion, our love of country, in a concerted effort to transform our culture into one altogether different from the one we have known. It is an adventurous thrust with cross and flag to pierce the heart of America without bloodshed, and it is already well underway. Mm, amazing. Prescient words, isn't it? And that's pretty much what was on display in the Capitol a few months ago yes. with cross and flag. Yeah, exactly. It's and, a Christian uh, insurrection. Well, and as you say, some of, the, some of the key players, I mean, we talked about, I did an episode on Jerry Falwell Sr., but another key player that you identify is Pat Robertson as well. Yes. One of the things you talk about is what you call the Falwell two-step. So what's the Falwell two-step? Well, we, were, uh, we, we spent hours and hours watching the electronic church. We, we <laughs> taped them. We were doing a communication analysis and content analysis and nonverbal wow. analysis, trying to understand uh, exactly how they were doing what they were doing to bring people in to their networks. We watched the old timers, the Oral Roberts and the uh, Rex Humbards, who were the old original uh, televangelists who started out in the 50s. Then we saw a change in the, in the late 60s and 70s, the newcomers, we called them, and Pat Robertson, Jim Baker from the PTL Club, Robinson. Robertson from the 700 Club, James Robeson, who billed himself as God's angry man. Robeson was yeah, very yeah. active with Falwell and Tim LaHaye when this whole movement went political. And then we went down to try to talk to these people and, and interview them. First place we went was uh, Virginia Beach, which was Pat Robertson's Christian Broadcast Network. At the time, uh, we were surprised. We called him the whiz because he was like the man behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. He had a little colonial brick building. He had three huge satellite dishes and a construction trailer. And that was his empire at that moment. But it was building. He, these people were bringing in a million dollars a week in donations. They were reaching tens of millions of people. Uh, Robertson uh, and his CBN hired state-of-the-art technicians, uh, built the latest technology. He got people hired away from CBS 
and RCA to come run these networks. And they showed us this. They were very proud. Yeah, they, uh, were. they signed us PR flags who wanted to show us around and they were really thrilled. And one of them pulled us aside and, and he said, uh, uh, we know uh, about snapping. All right. No, the, the, our, All our, right. our little protector, I said, okay, could you tell me where the ladies room is? So I went with it. She went with me and she said, I know about snapping. She said, now she goes, you're not going to call us a cult, are you? <laughs> We're I said, not a cult. I said, no. They didn't know what we already knew. You're way too big to be called a cult. That's right. Too massive of a movement. And that was back in the day, wasn't it? He's yeah. got an empire now. But He's Robert still said, around. Yeah. And we went down. We watched the show. We watched them. Um, him and Ben Kinchlow interviewing people. Mm-hmm. We watched their singers lip syncing in tongues, which was quite an experience. Afterwards, they held a small uh, service uh, in one of the chapels there for people, and we wanted to go in, but the PR us. people wouldn't let us go. They they pulled oh, really? us away in another direction, and they wouldn't let us near Pat Robertson. And we had a long talk with them about communication and this new technology. They and, really wanted us to see their technology, though. Absolutely. Right. They were proud so we of that said, part. Great. And we questioned, we but said, the techniques, uh, that was the problem. We yeah. said, can you understand that some people might consider this manipulative and the use of this powerful new satellite cable technology to reach millions with these messages and the political uh, undertones of all this? And, and their vice president for communications has looked at us. He said, the Lord has given us the new communications technology, Jim. We must use it. And yeah. uh, it was like just two ships passing in the night. We could not communicate with them. Our concerns, everything came back was that, well, we'll be where the Lord wants us to be. We'll do what the Lord wants us to do. Well, and I said, we have to be really, really straight with these people, you know, and not be intimidated ourselves. Be really straight. And I, I, I said, I asked this vice president there. He invited us to come to lunch. So we went to lunch. And I said, don't you think that there are a lot of people in other faiths that are going to find what you have to say, and especially the political tone of it, that they're going to have trouble with this? Mm-hmm. Well, then you get back, well, this is a free country, and that's just how it is. What they say, Jim? That's America for you. <laughs> Love it or leave it. And it's like, no matter how much you try to point up the fact that there are lots of other people in the country and that some of them might be very, very upset by what they're doing. It's like it, it did not penetrate. It just didn't register right over. Yeah. But they're trying to Christianize America. That, that's uh-huh. the whole thing. We haven't mentioned that up to this point, have we? We talked about Christian nationalism, but the whole thrust of this thing, it's got a dominionist sort of a- angle to it, doesn't it? Oh, yes. We need to oh, Christianize yeah. America. Christians need to be in charge. That's the whole point. Why would you want to get Christian candidates elected to high office so that they can be in charge? They need to be running the show. So that's the whole dominionist piece, isn't it? And the whole purpose, uh, as a lot of them stated in their literature stated and their books stated, it was to bring America under Christian rule, under the rule of the Bible and elect people who were Bible-believing Christians to the highest offices in the land. That was the agenda very openly declared in 1980. Uh, but mm-hmm. Jerry, Jerry Falwell was another element altogether. Uh, we wrote to Falwell and, uh, and to his people in, in Lynchburg, Virginia, before we left New York. We wanted to arrange an interview, uh, and we got back a six-page document that they wanted us to sign, giving Jerry Falwell all rights to edit and, and control this material. 
And of course, we called him back, said, no, no, we're never going to sign something like this. Can't do that. And, a, and a, week, a week later, he went on the old time gospel hour and he said, no one has balked at signing our agreement, but we require this uh, journalist. But we went down okay. anyway. We went down to Lynchburg from uh, after we left Virginia Beach. And Lynchburg was a whole other event altogether. It's a small mm. town. Falwell dominated the town, the economy. Uh, he had his Liberty Baptist College was just beginning. He had a Christian academy as a private school. Uh, he brought lots and lots of money in. Uh, and we checked into one of the local motels there uh, Saturday night. And I think Flo needed another pillow. So we called the desk and said, will you uh, bring us another pillow? And there's a knock on the door. And there's a young man there clutching a pillow. He said, you're from New York. Are you journalists? Are you reporters? <laughs> the reporters, yeah. He said, well, are you going you to, to church, church tomorrow? tomorrow? Listen, and this was the attitude everywhere. <laughs> you can't have the pillow until you, go, you agree to go to them, church. We told them, yeah, we're, we'll, we'll be there. Okay, yeah, not we for what talking. he thinks you're going for. <laughs> he said, you better get there early. And we get to uh, Thomas Road Baptist Church. This massive cavern is another red brick colonial style, but this was immense. He had uh, thousands of people in there. I think Flo was the only woman wearing pants. And they, <laughs> they ushered us into the back of With the- With short hair. They oh, you're such a rebel. The back of the, uh, the uh, venue. Uh, and people sat down next to us who we had a sense were, again, more minders who were kind of watching us. And uh, we watched Falwell give his lecture. We watched him make his claims. I think he was attacking Playboy magazine that day uh, and, uh, and talking about their plans. And everything was a pitch with Falwell, direct for money. This guy had mm -hmm. more gimmicks, more things he put out. He sold pins for your collar of the American flag. He had mm -hmm. say. Jesus first lapel pins, that was their political pin. He had his faith partner, uh, pocket secretaries. He had his old glory flag pins and everything that he put out and advertised uh, in between the segments of their church service was a appeal for money. Uh, and in the end, Falwell wouldn't talk to us. We went downstage afterwards. He was talking with a lot of his yeah. parishioners, but he was surrounded by four or five bodyguards, all mm -hmm. who seemed to be carrying walking sticks with heavy metal cops on them. They wouldn't let us near them. We they, arranged were, the next, they were watching us very closely. We went I'm to sure the moral authority headquarters the next day and uh, nobody would speak to us there. But where we got, got to know Falwell was from his writings, from his broadcast. And then we caught his act at the Copacabana in New York, where he came uh, in 1981 to deliver one of his political diatribes to a group of New York media people. And that was where we came to know this thing we called the Falwell Two-Step. Uh, right, now we're going to get into the Falwell two-step. I can't really wait to hear this. This was the beginning of what they call false equivalence. As we said in the book, in the course of a 90-minute talk and discussion, we watched Falwell disarm his challengers a dozen times using one of the few original techniques in his arsenal. That was what we came to call it, the two-step. He repeatedly drew analogies between religious rights, social and political tactics, and those employed over the years by groups on the left. In this kind of fast shuffle and his analogy, the, the classic two-step was Falwell saying, I think it's fair for the conservative goose to do what the liberal gander does. And every time that someone challenged him, he would pull out an example of people on the left doing this. Now, some feminists I was reading coming over here are advocating censorship in the field of pornography. I think that's a mistake. So then he comes out as seeming to be against pornography. Uh, this was in the era of uh, fundamentalists boycotting people, uh, some different magazines like Playboy and Penthouse and boycotting 
certain people that they considered to be unchristian. And Swalwell did a two-step on that. He said that uh, the ERA proponents, for example, they do not support states that, I, that haven't ratified the Equal Rights Amendment yet. He said, I think that's fair, but some disagree. And on preachers and politics, he spoke about William Coffin, the chaplain at Yale, and Martin Luther King. He said they have a right to take off their pastoral caps and fight the battles they fought. And I think Jerry Falwell has that right. Mm -hmm. On the First Amendment, he said, as a matter of fact, while I believe in the separation of church and state, he said there are many constitutional attorneys who do not. <laughs> and with Ronald Reagan, his classic two-step, I don't attempt to tell him how to run the White House. If I did, I think I know what he would do. And he doesn't try to run Thomas Road Church. I know he knows what I would do. And the classic, the Grand Slam Falwell two-step, we call it, was about the rights of atheists, focusing on America's foremost crusader against school prayer at that time, who was Madeline Murray O'Hare. Oh, yes. He said, Madeline O'Hare and I are not, let me just say we don't have any social times together. But I was in Texas last year for a rally on the state capitol steps, which the governor was very much for, and he had his aides there to help us. We were contacted a day or two ahead saying Madeline wanted to have a competitive rally on those grounds. I said, please do. We promise not to interrupt her, and I don't think she'll interrupt us, because although we disagree with her message, we would die for her right to preach it. And this was just mm -hmm. the textbook cases of false equivalence, where mm -hmm. anything they were doing was supposedly okay because people on the left did the same thing. And Frank Church made the real distinction for us when we were telling him about some of these things we had observed. He said, you know, the difference between the right and the left at that time, he said, the left is always trying to be more inclusive. They're trying to bring more people in. They're trying to broaden the tent. They're trying mm -hmm. to allow for people of different faiths. And at that time, they didn't call it diversity, but just to open up the party and open up the country. He said, the right, on the other hand, is trying to restrict people's freedoms, restrict their beliefs, impose their beliefs on others under penalty of law. That's something that persists to this day. And yet the Falwell two-step and what now is referred to as false equivalence is something mm -hmm. that people in the media, people in the population generally uh, succumb to because they figure, well, they're doing it. So what's wrong with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the whole whataboutism kind of thing. What yeah, about them? What about us? We're, we're not so bad. Look at them. They're just as bad, if not worse, than we are. Exactly. The notion of media, you can't even take a notion of media today. The one thing that this book will, will show you and teach you is that the, uh, the rules of the game for journalists were much more difficult then mm. <laughs> than they are now. Because, like, for example, in relation to media in this book, if you wanted to find out what these groups were doing, Nick Pack, Falwells, the churches, and, and all the politicians, if you mm. wanted to find out anything, you had to figure out how to drop in. It would be like fishing. You have to drop in a hook and then pull it out again and see if you get, see if you get a nibble. Yeah, like we signed up. I have more names. My name was spelled in more different ways because I was the person <laughs> was looking for asking the questions or whatever. Right. And then I'd get the, the lapel pins or I'd get something. Uh. We use different spellings of Flo Conway to code for which one of the networks that we were put in a mailing list or an 800 right. or a callback. And we could trace every two weeks, we would get another letter from Jerry Falwell or one of his enterprises asking for donations. Uh, then we would get letters from, we called in the 800 number at the, at the 700 club. And mm -hmm. Bill was one of the people asking for some counseling. And we started getting mail from them every few weeks. And 
And what we did was, though, after, after five months on the road and all this research, we came back to the east, went to a little place called Shelter Island out in the tip of Long wow. Island. It was mm-hmm. a place that actually was a haven for people that Roger Williams threw out of Rhode Island. So this was a place that had a history. Right. We brought back cartons of direct mail letters, and we got books from every one of these preachers and piles of the transcripts that we had interviewed. And we set out to analyze this the way we did in snapping, to look at the communication factors, the messages that were going out, the impact on people, the impact now, not just one-to-one like cult recruiters, the Krishnas in the airports or the Moonies on city streets, but now over these massive networks of mass communication technology that fed Mm -hmm. out through the electronic church and then back through the 800 numbers and the direct mail networks, and then channeled into all the political operations, the grassroots groups and organizing and mobilization that became the religious right. Mm. We've had this amazing discussion. What we should probably do is we want to spend some little bit of time talking about your project that we're working on, but let's maybe we can conclude by talking about how you see it now, as you call it, the widening web of holy terror, you know, decades later after you wrote your book, is, is there a through line to what we're seeing? I mean, we've talked about it a little bit with Donald Trump and the evangelical support, the Christian right. How do you see your work coming to fruition decades later now? Well, I think what uh, Flo touched on, what Mike Seiner told us in the follow-up conversation we had with him uh, when they finally defeated them, and he's the one who said from that early era in the 80s when this was pretty open and people were able to go to at least observe this, get on the mailing list and find out some information, uh, this black marketplace of ideas that went into the underground through the closed channels, then went into these stealth campaigns. Pat Robertson's Christian Coalition in the late 80s, uh, with Ralph Reed describing the way they would travel at night, and you wouldn't know it's over till you're in a body bag. Uh, by the 90s That's and chilling. into the 2000s, what we're still seeing is what we call the lightning bolt effect. The mainstream mm-hmm. media Uh, liberal media in particular, still have difficulty talking about the religious dimension to this political uh, movement. Mm. They talk about the base, the base, the base of the Republican Party, and they'll give every other explanation, economic, social, cultural, even racist now, but they will not get into the religious component of this, which, as we see, is the one that's controlling this massive group that still constitutes the largest block of Republican voters mm, who have been yeah. channeled into these movements and channeled to these purposes. Well, and I read a little bit of it from Diane. Diane said when she, her first, the first cracks in the wall for her, she was dusting and she found an old dictionary. And in the dictionary was an old copy of the Declaration of Independence. And mm-hmm. she read it and she said, oh, that's interesting. You know, our constitution and our government is more Christian <laughs> than all these churches. How but ironic. I, what people have also said in Holy Terror to us then, that the country had turned mean, that there was this brand of politicking now was mean. It was dirty business. Mm-hmm. And the way in which communication was used to intimidate, uh, to twist knots in people's hearts, to twist knots in their heads. But it's the lack of compassion, the lack of what Steiner said, lies, just all the things that we are today seeing. And my question, even now about what's happening now, is how much of these same strategies, how much have now just 
become part of that whole now mass social media, you know, where people think, oh, they can be as mean as they want. They can say anything about anybody and nobody will know who they are. But, you know, that's one of the things that we watch in this transition in this long haul from Reagan to Donald Trump. Donald Trump really ripped the mask off of the religious right, as, as we see it. Those innocent Christians, the people who really did love Jesus in the beginning, um, so many of them still are, are voting as a block for the Republican Party because mm -hmm. they believe in this. They will always love Donald Trump and stand by him because he handed them the one grand prize that they have wanted since the 70s, which is the Supreme Court. And they're still counting on uh, Trump's legacy to continue to give them a Christian America. Mm -hmm. And uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, alone to be the swing vote that will finally bring down Roe v. Wade, which was the original uh, inception point and motivation for the Christian right. But what I think Trump did, which is really the most disconcerting part, you know, throughout the history of the religious right and the uh, evangelical fundamentalist movement, especially the conservative Christians, uh, there's been this undertone of, uh, of racism. It's been implicit in the Christian schools movement. It was implicit in a lot of the issues they took on. Well, mm -hmm. Trump just ripped the mask off it. And now you have Trump and QAnon and the Proud Boys, and you have all these far right extremist groups that are purely Christian nationalists. And this element of race hatred has come right out in the open. Trump just pushed that button and just pushed it until it ex exploded across the landscape of this country. And what's most disconcerting is that people are still so deeply into this. They're so invested in the belief system that you can't even get through to them to the point where, as you're seeing, as we're seeing, people uh, who have fallen down the QAnon rabbit hole or into some of these extremist groups still believe that this is a Christian mission and a Christian movement and that, that they're good God-fearing Christians, even while they are displaying some of the worst attitudes toward their fellow human beings. Well, and I was going to say, too, I think it's important that in Holy Terror, because you came at it from a communications point yeah. of view, I know that's your background yes. professionally, that you analyzed it from a communications. How does this actually move people emotionally and in other ways that these guys like Falwell, Pat Robertson, Tim LaHaye, Robeson, Wyrick, and so many others, the architects of the Christian right, they were able to use all these manipulation tactics, the holy terror, the fear to motivate their base to do what they wanted them to do. These people were manipulated. I think it's important to have stories like Diane's because she's the individual person who was manipulated. And you look at the effect it had on her, her marriage, her family, her life, her psychology, her mental health. The individual person suffered, and luckily when she came out of it, I love that part where you talk about it. She goes to the Washington for Jesus rally, and she's like almost shaking people going, you're not listening to me. I can't get through to these people. They're that brainwashed uh, and manipulated by all this you know, mass manipulation. But that's when we, we saw that not just um, what was happening to, the, to them and their ability to think for themselves, as Diane points out so powerfully. Mm-hmm. We, that's when we named and we saw that one of the most major kinds of control operating here was emotional control. And in the symbolism, in the electronic church and in all of the things at, in Falwell's church, all of the symbolism, the, the words they use, and it was by the messages and the twisted messages. And that is today. We have a legacy now in this country where we are seeing that 
communication is being twisted. Communication is being used. Everybody wants what they want politically or otherwise. And so they'll twist and turn and do whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's really in there where what Trump has done and uh, what this country is left with right now, which is very, it's a very uh, potentially fragile situation. It is a fragile situation. Mm-hmm. And it's because all of these messages have twisted what the basic values are, twisted how trust between one another, uh, just basic trust, the value in Holy Terror, say, and a lot of the people we talk to, politicians said, in such a polyglot land as this, if we didn't have that kind of trust in one another, and something so that we could say, okay, I don't agree with you, but let's, you know, let's see if we can do something called the common good. And that has been so abused and, mm. and taken for granted. And I think that right now in our country, this is one of the legacies from all of this in Holy Terror or right now. And I think that this communication is an organic process between and among human beings. And I think this process has been corrupted in so many ways that it's affecting the general population. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. deeply polarized, isn't it? That's really our overriding concern in Holy Terror. Uh, we've paced you through some of the time travel and, and our own travels across the country and our interviews. The second half of the book is where we really get into the analysis of what we call this mindset of ideological fundamentalism. And it starts with the Christian fundamentalist uh, recru- uh, conversion. We go out and we show how all these controls of communication are internalized through things that you and your audience know very well. The classic altar calls, the call to surrender, to surrender to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and this, new, this new aspect we noticed of how the emotional controls are internalized. We have examples in the book of some of the major missionary and, and uh, parachurch organizations, Campus Crusade for Christ, InterVarsity, the Navigators. And they say explicitly, do not depend on feelings. Your heart is the worst part. And they give Mm -hmm. meditation in campus crusade. They call it spiritual breathing for stilling your emotions, for stilling the mind. And this, they said, after a while, it just becomes automatic. And uh, your audience knows very well how many years and decades someone can remain in that automatic mode. And only when they come out can they really begin to understand they've been under control. And, and now what we're seeing after the Trump years, after the Trump era, is people, very few of whom are coming out. A lot of them are doubling down. A lot of the MAGA people, uh, Trump people, mm-hmm. Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, they're doubling down on their conspiracy theories. Uh, only a handful from what we've seen so far have really come out. And some of them are helping to lead others out, just as ex-evangelicals are helping to lead others out. Uh, and only then can they understand the intensity of these internalized control processes and and how simple messages, simple communications pumped out, whether it was through satellite cable, electronic church networks, or now over the internet and the dark web and social media, how lasting and penetrating these controls can be. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the overriding message we have seen and the evolution, the escalation of holy terror from then to now. 
And I think that's why Holy Terror is such an important piece of work because when I read it a few years ago, it immediately resonated with me because I said to myself, I was raised in fundamentalist evangelical Christianity because you were able to articulate those communication techniques. I saw how I had been manipulated and I had been controlled myself as a Christian, as a person just growing up in this system. So for people who are deconstructing, it's a good resource, isn't it? Which actually brings me to my last topic that we need to talk about, this uh, survey that we've been trying to promote a little bit, and we want to talk about that. You're doing some work on helping ex-evangelical people kind of get some research going on this field, aren't you? Yes. And just as we did our first initial study after snapping with the cult phenomenon, and it was there that we discovered some of the underlying controls that led us into holy terror, as we're saying, the people came out of the woodwork uh, to mm-hmm. talk. But uh, yes, uh, this uh, survey that we are doing now, we are trying to uncover some of the kinds of messages, some of the kinds of what else are you doing? We're looking at the long-term effects, effects as people come out. It's yeah. why uh, we've been uh, just testing this initially through some of the closed Facebook groups, what we call the Ex-Evangelical Experience Survey of 2021. Uh, and Clint, maybe you can post the latest link uh, with this po- with this uh, mm-hmm. notice when you uh, post this podcast, because we really would love to hear from former evangelicals. And we really would like to hear, you can do it anonymously if you like, or you can give us information, but we walk through the experience. We wanna understand how people were drawn in to their churches, whether it was from birth, as many people are, today, uh, or whether they were recruited on a college campus or in any range of social uh, avenues that brought people in, and what kind of ritual practices they were subject to uh, regularly, daily, uh, what kind of information flow they experienced, whether their major sources of information were their pastors and fellow church members, or uh, whether they were through conservative media networks or some liberal media networks. Uh, And then we really want to understand uh, what a lot of people are beginning to talk about uh, in the ex-evangelical community, and that mm-hmm. is the extent of the traumas and post-traumatic effects they've experienced, both cognitive and emotional, and in some cases, physical. So uh, we invite everyone to click on that link and fill out the survey, and we hope to bring in the first body of data. Uh, many people have interviewed evangelical Christians. Uh, we found over the years it's a little like interviewing Moonies. After a while, you're going to get the exact same responses. Same responses. But when people come out, when they come to understand, as you have, Clint, as so many people have now, what kinds of controls they were under, what kinds of ways their lives and their minds were affected. That's what's really interesting, because then you have people who can share their experiences. And what we hope to do for the first time since our study in the 80s is assemble this data. At the end of the survey, we do leave place for people, for individuals to write whatever message they want to write about their experience right and they can it, comment yeah and they can be very they can just they could say as much as they want they're, it, they're not confined to a word limit or anything like mm-hmm. that but it's very important because we would not have known about the cult phenomenon we would not have learned how they were damaging and which ones were the most damaging and what were the ritual practices and what were the what was the indoctrination and how damaging was that and by understanding by able to see that and understand that it's much easier then for people to be able to go about 
finding help or finding what what they need from that. Mm-hmm. So we're really hoping to be able to zero in on some of mm-hmm. the range questions. Here. And even our preliminary, uh, the very first findings from what we're getting back from people, it's exactly as you found in why groups like my, podcasts like MindShift and ex-evangelical Facebook groups and uh, those groups are the ones that are helping people more than anything. Those weren't available to former cult members or people in Bible cults or extreme fundamentalist churches back in the 80s. But today, that appears to be one of the most important ways people can find their way back from some of the harrowing experiences. And uh, we hope to gather some data that will really help people understand what works, what's effective, how people have been affected, and, uh, and how they can find their way back. All right. So if you identify as an ex-evangelical or an ex-Christian, you need to look in the show notes because the link to that survey will be in the show notes. Is that something that you would like people to share if they said, oh, I want to take the survey and I've got three or four friends who also identify as ex-evangelical? Should they share that link as well so more and more people can take the survey? Yes, I think so. Sure. I, uh, they can share the link. We'll be uh, analyzing data. And uh, just like in our initial surveys, uh, if there's any part of the uh, sampling that, that uh, in, in any way appears that it's not legitimate people responding, if anyone thinks they're trying to manipulate us, that will show up in our data analysis. So we would invite people to definitely respond to us and uh, share this with people who are other evangelicals who may also find that mm-hmm. it will be uh, informative for them too. And then finally, one last question. If people wanted to communicate with you directly, is there a way to get a hold of you? What's the best way to contact you? I think our email address is listed in the survey, but you can find us at Jim at stillpointpress.net. And uh, you'll be able to see that link, hopefully. Maybe you'll have that posted too, Clint. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah. All right. So once again, Flo and Jim, thank you so much. It has been absolutely an amazing conversation. I always love talking to you too. Coming all the way from New York City here in North Wales. I'm like shivering in the cold, but you're nice and warm. So (laughs) that's good to know that you're nice and comfortable while I'm freezing in the cold. (laughs) Clint, it's always a pleasure to speak with you and to talk to people in your audiences. And uh, we hope some of this time travel is... uh, is a a little bit of history for people. And uh, sorry if we've gone on too long and often some tangents here, but this has been quite an experience for us now going on 40 years. And uh, we learn more every day. And actually this would be the first time. We've had many first times with you, Clint. It's like nobody's, nobody's asked to talk about the real innards of Holy Terror because there is so much in that book so much that still mm. rings today so it was it's been a pleasure you know it's been a, a, a real experience trying to get the get uh, memory bank <laughs> we've had a lot of requests a lot of people in the u.s and uh, and abroad who have been coming to us uh, in the aftermath of the trump era and and the capital siege and uh, we've talked about re- redoing holy terror the book technically has been out of print mm. since the late 80s and we've right. tried several different times to do an update and we just go, well, this would be a thousand page book, but we may have a handle on this. And as we gather this information and winnow it out, uh, we may be able to get a revised and updated edition. And if we do, you'll be the first to know. Very good. Well, thank you, Jim and Flo. And we'll do this again. Well, we're not going to wait two years again. Let's okay. do this again. All right. Thank you so much. Clint. Thanks. And best of luck to you and everyone in your audience.